0: After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom.
1: Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Taylor Sparks, an associate professor of material science and engineering at the University of Utah, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Falkowski. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, things were pretty crazy, pretty hectic for a while. A lot of jobs and opportunities changing, but
2: things are finally
1: stabilizing.
2: I know. And Andrew a had a
1: sweet gig in Switzerland that fell through because of the Corona. And we're real sad about that. You, are you bummed? Or are you getting over it? Um, <laughs> it's still a sore spot.
2: <laughs> the other day I was eating breakfast with my dad. And when you know, when you open the computer, it'll show you a picture and it showed a
1: picture of Switzerland. He's like, huh, you could have been here too soon, computer <laughs> too soon. <laughs> We are also joined by Jared, our audio guru. Thank you, Jared, for being here. And today we've got a guest. We're here with Colton Fox. Colton was a student of mine. He got his master's in 2018, did a master's in material science at the University of Utah, and he's got a lot to say about the episode today. So before we dive into the episode today, let me start out by saying that this episode was made possible by a new partnership that we have. This is with the American Ceramic Society. They've decided to sponsor four episodes like today's, which are related to ceramics. Um, And this professional society is the first one that I joined way back when I was an undergrad and I was working at Ceramatech Incorporated, and it's always felt like a home for me. ACERS puts on great conferences, like the big one, at least that I go to, is the International Conference and Expo on Advanced Ceramics and Composites, ICACC, and it's always held in Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, My group regularly attends that one, but they have lots of other great specialty conferences on glass, manufacturing, electronics, and a lot more. Um, They publish a lot of great content. Uh, In journals like the Journal of the American Ceramic Society or the Acer's Bulletin, they offer things like their phase equilibria software and just a whole lot more. If you think that you might even remotely be interested in ceramics, check out ceramics.org and learn more about them. Another
2: little bit of housekeeping is that we have a website now. You can find it at materialismpodcast.com. It features links to all of our social media and hosting sites, as well as some artwork made by me, and it refreshes with the latest episodes so you can listen on the site if that's what you prefer. But you should stay tuned to it take that website and hit that bookmark button so that it stays in your browser because we have a lot of really interesting features many that you have been requesting for some time that'll be coming to it in the coming months
1: so today's episode is on polycrystalline diamond which i don't know if any of your listeners have ever had that pass your mind like we all think of diamond as gemstones that's clearly a single crystal but polycrystalline diamond why is this a thing and why are we devoting a whole episode to it you'll see they turn out to be incredibly important but before we dive into that I need to explain some basics about diamond to start with. Diamond is one of the coolest engineering materials out there. Diamond has what's called SP3 bond hybridization. Remember way back to chemistry. You probably learned about this. S versus SP, SP2. So SP3 means that it's bonded. There's four bonds that these S and P orbitals hybridize together to make four bonds. So every carbon in the diamond structure is bonded to four other carbons. And since we know that these bonds don't like to overlap, the shape that that's going to form is called a tetrahedron, right? So it's tetrahedral organization. So imagine like dumbbells. You've got two below it and two above it, but they're rotated 90 degrees so that they're all sort of away from each other as much as they can. That's the basic bonding motif. But diamond is itself a crystal structure that's cubic. It has atoms that looks like face-centered cubic. They're on the corners and on the face centers, right? But then if you looked at that alone, just the FCC, the face centered cubic structure, it would have eight interstitials between those ones on the corners and faces. And they're located at the quarter, quarter, quarter positions in the crystal. So what diamond does is it occupies half of those interstitials. So if you occupy half of those eight, What you end up with is a lattice where every carbon is bonded to four other carbons all the way around it it's very directional it's strong and because of diamond uh the the atom that makes up diamond carbon it ends up with really interesting properties first off because it has really low atomic mass and there's a bunch of these empty spaces in the structure that we chose not to fill in order to end up with four bonds there's quite a bit of empty space in the lattice and that leads to low density the density of diamonds only like 3.5 Grams per cc, which is pretty low. That's half of what steel is, for example, a little bit less. Okay. Um, It also has low coefficient of friction. It's very, very strong and wear resistant, which is why you know we use it in today's episode. We'll talk about that more. Um, It is an incredibly good conductor of heat because it has these low atomic weight things. There, they vibrate at different frequency than heavy ones would, um, and the strong directional bonds. It leads to just incredibly good thermal conductor. Oftentimes, we think about Um, An electrical short, something that conducts electricity almost perfectly, like electricity runs right through it. This could be thought of as a thermal short. Heat moves through it, you know, compared to other things, it looks like it's just perfectly quickly. Um, So that's some of the basics of diamond. What we're talking about today is diamond used as cutting tools. And it's hard to imagine you taking like your diamond ring, pulling that thing off and just scraping it along something to use it as a cutting tool. But believe it or not, diamond is an incredible cutting tool. So there's some different types. You want to walk us through them, Andrew? Yeah, so... Even going back to
2: even the era of the Romans, they figured out that they were able to actually, you know, they were able to find diamonds and they found that they were so hard that they could start attaching them to things. And so what you'd have is you'd have metal bonded diamond. So they'd take tiny diamond chunks and they would, you know, sinter these together with metal and then put it on the edge of a blade or something, and they found that it was much harder. Pliny the Elder, the infamous IPA from the Russian River Brewing Company, (laughs) described this. Um, That was the first thing that came up when I Googled him, which is kind of strange. That's a little bit sad. Or would he be happy with that? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. But in any case, if you're unfamiliar, Pliny the Elder was a Roman author who wrote the Encyclopedic Naturalist Historia, which is one of the largest It's like the Bible. It's
1: this massive tome. Mm -hmm.
2: One of the largest uh, written works surviving the Roman era. Um, but beyond that, you can also have resin-bonded uh, diamonds using polishing films and pads um, for polishing different things that has high resistance. You also have plated diamond tools, where you have a thin film of diamond applied via electrodeposition or chemical vapor deposition to the, the tool bit, and we'll probably do a whole another episode on those. Um, but you can also have polycrystalline diamond the subject of this episode, where you have a lot of micron-sized diamonds that are bonded together to form a whole. And then the sort of next step beyond that is polycrystalline diamond compacts, where we combine layers of diamond, many micron-sized diamonds that are bonded together in some sort of layered situation, and then they are cemented to a carbide substrate. And then these are uh, enable it to have a lot more toughness when used in a tooling application. More
1: so than diamond alone, which would be a little bit more brittle than mm-hmm. the, the carbide. Right, account. you
2: combine the features of both materials. Very cool. Is that it? Um, finally, you can also have high-temperature... Braze diamond tools. So you essentially braise a single layer of diamond onto the tool at high temperature, and the goal here is to, you know, prevent any sort of oxidation or other things and secure a strong bond. But by exposing the layer of diamonds and making them a bit higher up than the rest of the tool bit, you can essentially use them as the, the, the cutting tool. But these take up actually a pretty big industry. I think for a lot of people unfamiliar with it, it can seem like kind of a novel concept, the idea of using diamonds in cutting tools. But uh, according to a market analysis report from Grandview Research, the global industrial diamond market is worth about uh, 1.79 billion U.S. dollars in 2018. And this is largely driven by construction and transportation industries and is expected to grow as many countries in the third world are starting to industrialize and have more need for
1: construction. So, Colton, uh, just let me turn the question to you. Where do these things actually get used? What are the applications for polycrystalline diamond? What is something... Like, why can't I just use sandpaper or file or whatever else uh, for all my cutting and grinding?
0: Yeah, so polycrystalline diamond, one of the main applications is in the oil and gas industry for oil drilling. Um, that's where a lot of that's done. Um, other thing is if you need to machine, anything that's that's extremely hard. Um, there's some drawbacks with that that we'll talk about later. Um you can't use it in, with steels, for example, because it will start to, to revert back to a graphite state. But
1: um, Yeah. When I walk people through my labs, when I'm doing like a lab tour for new students, I'll show them our diamond wafer saw, which sounds amazing. <laughs> it's actually just like, so it's it's bits of diamond right, embedded in a matrix. But we work with ceramics in my lab. A lot of our work is ceramics. And if you're going to cut and polish and shape ceramics into the different pieces that we need, what are you going to use? You have to use something harder than ceramics, which means you're probably looking at carbides or uh, diamond yep
2: and for oil drilling this was kind of a game changer because by being able to last a lot longer and being a lot sharper you can drill a lot deeper and then a lot of times if your oil wells are going miles deep when you have oil wells that are miles deep you don't want the bit breaking you have to pull all that back up there and that takes time and money and so this having diamond tools uh tool bits on top of the oil drilling wells was able to uh really extend the
1: life of those so we're talking about using diamond as a tool. Where on earth do you get diamond the size of a tool? Because the the average listener might be thinking, what, a gemstone like the size of a pickaxe? What is this? Like Minecraft? What is this nonsense? Like how are we getting these tools? Are there mineral deposits of diamond, polycrystalline diamond that they tap into and use? There are, there are mineral deposits. I think the name is carbonato, which looks kind of like polycrystalline diamond, but... It's not going to be easy to find these. They're not going to be available in the quantities. They're going to be difficult to shape. Like what we really want is to make our own polycrystalline diamond. So to do that, you need to start with diamond. And we're not going to start with the gemstones that you're getting at, you know, De Beers or whatever. So where do we get diamonds to start with? It's a little bit of a contentious history. There's a lot of people that claim to be the first to come up with, you know, making diamond. First off, what are you going to make it from? Well, the naturally abundant version of carbon that we have is going to be graphite. And that you can mine out of the ground you can make it yourself um and to turn it into diamond you've probably heard that if you squeeze graphite you can turn it into a diamond this is like a you know a thing that people understand a little bit about um it's actually not trivial It takes high temperature and high pressure and it is not trivial so andrew how did this begin
2: Over the years, a lot of people have been pretty fascinated with making diamonds. There were several individuals who claimed to produce synthetic diamonds using various high pressure, high temperature, or a combination of them in various methods. You had Hene in 1879, Moissan in 1893, Ruff in 1917. There's a couple of other names sprinkled in here. But in almost all of these cases, claims were retracted or the experiments were unreproducible. They'd always say, like, oh, I've made diamond. And then they'd look and they'd find a natural diamond amidst <laughs> the uh, the powder that they made. And the reason that they were using that or they found that is because it was intended to be a seed crystal. So by putting it in the carbon, they were hoping that it would form a good, um, essentially, substrate for more diamond to grow and off So what of. they
1: really found was the
2: original reagent. That's right, yeah. Um, The most definitive attempts at reproducing the previous experiments were carried out by Charles Algernon Parsons. If the name sounds familiar, he was the one who invented the steam engine, and because of that, he developed a lot of wealth, and so in the later part of his life, he devoted a lot of that money to trying to reproduce all these previous experiments. Um, He even attempted some of his own. One of the more interesting ones was he constructed a steel block, put a you know, cut a chamber into it and put some graphite in there and then took a high powered rifle and fired it point blank into this, (laughs) hoping that the heat and the pressure generated by this bullet would be able to form a diamond. So did it work? It didn't work, but (laughs) he was known for being extremely meticulous in his experiments. And so after doing thousands of experiments and trying to reproduce these, he eventually published a report which showed that, or at least his conclusion was that nobody as of that date was able to actually create diamond, through all the experiments
1: that had been tried yeah so to the best of my knowledge the first person to really figure out how to get diamond from graphite was a guy named tracy hall in 1971 at general electric it actually came a little bit before that he was doing the work back in the 50s now why i'm excited about tracy hall is he's a utah boy he grew up in my hometown in ogden utah It's right where i grow It's in Layton, right next door so i'm excited for this guy uh, he grew up there the dude fought in world war ii he was in the navy um, and then another cool thing, he was Henry Eyring. Some people may know about Henry Eyring in the field of chemistry. is a big deal. Uh, he was his first PhD student, which I think is so cool. So he did his degree in physical chemistry, which is just material science. Um, and two months later, you know, he'd always said as a kid growing up that he wanted to work at General Electric. One day, this, you know, kid from obscure you know, out west we wanted to work at General Electric, and he got it. He, two months after he got his PhD, he was hired at General Electric Research Lab in Schenectady, New York. So they had this top secret project. It was codenamed Project Super Pressure. It was headed by an engineer, Anthony Narad. And there's some controversy because they'd been working on this for a while, right? In the 50s, this had been going on at General Electric for a while, at least four or five years. And there was this growing frustration from upper management like this isn't going to work. This isn't going anywhere. This is not a good use of funds. And so Hall comes in and he starts working on it. Um, the premise for his approach was based off of geological materials. He knew that polycrystalline forms like carbonato, we mentioned before, balas and others, uh, that it must be able to exist, but those exist under very high pressure. So he knew that his first step was building a contraption that could generate really high pressures. So in this process he built something with a totally different design. It was called the belt press, right? So the belt press, think of like your typical uniaxial press. If you're a material scientist, at some point, I hope in your lab, you've done a material, uh, a uniaxial pressing experiment. Think of it as like a vice. It's typically vertical. So you put your sample in a die in the middle and you squeeze it from top to bottom. But instead of just the uniaxial press, you wrap it with a series of concentric rings of steel belts that go around it. And those provide the retaining force so you can generate large pressures. That was essentially what he was building in his belt press. Now, he complains that you know he had to sort of bootleg this machine because he wasn't getting the tools that he was looking for. For example, he was relegated to this small, squeaky, antique 400-ton press when what he really wanted was uh, a much larger press. Nevertheless, even with starting, with starting materials like iron sulfide and a f- powdered form of carbon as the starting material and then these tantalum discs to provide the electricity for heating it via dual heating, he was able to conduct an experiment where he generated about 100,000 atmospheres. That's about 10 gigapascals and 1,600 Celsius. It took him about 38 minutes. And upon breaking open the sample, sure enough, there was clusters of diamond, uh, octahedral crystals that were found sort of sticking to the tantalum metal disks. And all of a sudden we realized, well, maybe that tantalum was serving as a catalyst. And little did you know, that was probably actually a very important part of it in this first sort of recorded synthesis of diamond.
2: And after creating such an amazing invention, what did Tracy Hall get for his contribution
1: to GE? A $10 savings bond. No joke, though. This is for real. If you've seen Breaking Bad, Walter White even jokes about this. He made them a fortune, and they give him a $10 savings bond. You know, pretty wild. So don't invent anything. (laughs) So what's interesting, I don't know what the rationale was for leaving General Electric, if it was good terms, bad terms. I don't know. But he does leave General Electric. And he decides to go to BYU where he's made, I forget his title. I think it's Director of Research there. Um, It's a big deal. And so he wants to continue working on high pressure materials, but he doesn't own the patent for this belt press. And so he can't work on it. So what does he do? He invents new types of presses, which turn out to be much better. He invents the cubic and the tetrahedral presses. Um, So what was that about? So Andrew, he had to build a totally different type of press. How did he go about it? What's the principle behind what he built?
2: Right. So... Starting from the principle before the design, he uses the principle of massive support, where you have a larger, sort of a larger object that narrows down into a smaller one, so that your pressure is then concentrated, so you can maximize
1: it. So picture like a uh, the pyramids of Giza. You flip that thing upside down, and then you chop the very top off. Mm-hmm. If you were to push on the base of that really large area. That same force now gets directed to a small area, and basic, you know, force divided by area is stress. We know that as you decrease that area, you're going to generate a large stress. Mm-hmm. So that, that's really it?
2: Exactly, yeah. And so, so initially, he built one that was tetrahedral, but according to him, it had a unusual geometry, and it was difficult to work with, and so he switched then to a cubic, which essentially had six of these that would form the uh, essentially a cubic shape. Um, or at least press into a cubic shape with the diamond powder in the center. And most of these ended up getting moved to China in the 1960s. After he invented the cubic and tetrahedral presses, a lot of these were then moved to China in the 1960s. And today that's where most of the world's synthetic diamond powder is produced. Um, But after this, he goes on to found the company Mega
1: Diamond in Provo, Utah. Very cool. So just to put this in context, just because he made these companies doesn't mean that they were like pumping out polycrystalline diamond, and it was being used at a large rate in this time period. We're in the late 70s, and it's not actually being used very much. Um, that's because the previous best tool, known tool were these rolling cones, and this was innovated by Howard Hughes, Sr. If you haven't heard of Howard Hughes, he's a, his son went on to create the Spruce Goose, that gigantic, was a, a very strange, eccentric guy. Um, so it's cool that this was his dad, but he formed the Hughes Tool Company. They partnered with General Electric to release the very first polycrystalline diamond cutting tools. They called them compacts. This is in fall of 1973 um, and they weren't great. They were actually pretty crappy by today's standards. They, they would not be big sellers today. Um, they had a lot of problems. For example, they had a lot of residual stresses in the center of these things. They didn't have very good cutting durability. The edges would chip a lot. They would thermally degrade. They would become debonded from the substrate underneath them There was lots and lots of problems with these but they saw that there was potential for them and so they kept on innovating them and it was a really slow market adoption that really didn't even start till the the early 80s you only had a few percent of the drill bits were of this type but it has steadily grown over time in fact it's interesting if you look at a plot of active drill rigs there was a 15-year decline up until 1971 when these things were invented and then after that it's increasing when i read this i was like oh my gosh look that's evidence that materials led to this but no it was the, uh, the huge gas lines and the oil shortages in the 70s that led our government to say, like, let's get serious about domestic supply. And so they incentivized drilling, and that was really part of it. But as they were looking to do more drilling, they also wanted a better tool for it. And at the same time, that's when these polycrystalline diamonds were coming along. As of the early 2000s, over half of the total distance that's been drilled on these underwater, underground bores has been done using diamond drill bits. And I'm sure that's only increased in the last 20 years. So there's a
2: great article by Dan Belknap of Mega Diamond, my former boss, and he discusses a lot of the pioneers who actually took diamond from that state where it was still brittle to what we know today, right? Because pressing a diamond isn't trivial, and there's a lot of things that go into
1: consideration. Yeah, I mean, imagine all the work that went in just going from graphite to make diamond. Now how do you make a bunch of those diamonds stick together and be a strong compact? That is not trivial, so tell us about it. Right, yeah. If you're making a sandpaper, lots of little diamond grit is helpful. But if you want to make a, a
2: drill bit or a piece that's going to actually stick yeah, together. it's not right? held
1: together by resin or, mm-hmm. or something.
2: You have to start thinking about how you can optimize the process and make it better. So some early pioneers were Stromberg and Stevens in 1970 who investigated a lot of different sintering aids and procedures to try and make sure they, they go together. And so they were devising the right temperatures and the right pressures that would yield maximum uh, sintering. Then you have Katzman and Libya in 1971, where they were able to catalyze diamond-diamond tools using cobalt as the solvent catalyst. And this was a huge transformation, because not only would it lower the, the activation energy and make it easier to bond diamond to diamond, but it allowed you to get these larger tools that were formed from it. Building off of them, you have Hibbs and Wentworth in 1974, where they were the ones to use a tungsten carbide, Uh, cobalt substrate which has three key advantages first your source of cobalt as the catalyst but then you have a strong metallurgical bond to the tungsten carbide compact after sintering so those previous issues where the diamond would become delaminated from the substrate yeah now you've got a really strong bond mm -hmm, now it's well bonded and on top of that the tungsten carbide has high toughness and a great material overall and can be easily bonded to other surfaces such as the tool.
1: So something you sort of went over quickly is this idea, uh, you said that you need to have uh, sintering aids Mm -hmm. and that cobalt is one such really good sintering aid. We're going to dive into that a little bit. What actually happens, you've got a bunch of really tiny particles of diamond. When you bond this thing together, those don't melt. They stay in a solid form. And so imagine if you're thinking of like marbles in a bucket, if you tried to pour marbles into a bucket, there's still going to be gaps in between them, right? And those gaps between them are called interstitials. And those who study material science know that we try and get rid of those with a process called sintering. Obviously they have a lot of surface area and we don't like surface area that costs us energy. So we'd like to get rid of it. There's an energetic driving force, but it can be really slow and it depends on how quickly you can move material in to fill in those gaps, right? Or how quickly you can move vacancies out. Now, one thing you can do to aid sintering is you can melt something. A little bit of something else can melt and fill in those gaps. And that's what this cobalt is doing for us. It needs to be molten. So you need to heat this up above the melting temperature of the liquid sintering aid, and it can help fill in some of those gaps. But then it has some other advantages, right? The diamond can actually dissolve into it, right? The solubility becomes important. So if you look at the thermodynamics of diamond, it's pretty interesting. We know that it takes high temperature and pressure. You can actually draw a line. If you plot temperature versus pressure on axes, there's this line. And above it, you get diamond. And below it, you get graphite. So you can draw another line that shows the melting point of cobalt as a function of pressure and essentially ends up with a quadrant. And in that quadrant, you get liquid cobalt, but diamond being stable. And that's where you want to be. Right. And where that happens is above typically five to seven GPA and above about fourteen hundred Celsius so now think about trying to achieve that in an experiment that's those are pretty intense conditions to each it sounds trivial like oh i'll just dial up six gigapascals and 1500 celsius like no like that's really wild conditions to make that at large scale on some sort of macroscopic device and we're talking centimeter scale devices which is pretty big um so this sintering process it's not surprising that it took quite a while for them to work the bugs out of it to figure out how to make polycrystalline diamond compacts or composites which are the big cutting tools that we can now use so colton we've made it sound like sintering is really just simple and we can just center a bunch of diamonds together in the in the real world what's it like when you try and center diamond
0: yeah so i mean you're starting off with this powder and as you apply that pressure um those diamond grains come in contact with each other and, and you get those really high pressure contact areas but in that interstitial space Uh, you're still at low pressure and so some of that diamond ends up converting to graphite as you start to increase that temperature as the temperature increases your cobalt melts it infiltrates up through that diamond Um, it can dissolve a lot of that carbon into uh, the, the into that cobalt and then what it does is it ends up precipitating out and regrowing new diamond and fusing all of those existing particles together
1: Yeah, I actually read about that. It says here, assisting the transformation from graphite to diamond is the greater solubility of graphite in the liquid solvent uh, compared to diamond. So it's dissolving. This graphite that's forming, it's actually more soluble, and then it's going to precipitate out, which is pretty cool. Nevertheless, you end up with diamonds, which is plastically deforming, which we don't typically think of a hard, brittle material like diamond as deforming, but under these conditions, you actually have definite evidence. They've shown it with TEM. They see like. Dislocation, you know, piling up. There's, there's definite signs that these are actually plastically deforming. You end up with a highly, just like recovery, you know, recrystallization and regrowth. You're getting the same process. You get these highly damaged regions where they're in contact, and then you grow new diamond out from those interfaces, which is so cool to me. I've never thought of that happening in a ceramic, but at these temperatures and pressures, it's possible. And uh, you know, obviously, we've said that this is tricky to do. But how do you actually achieve these conditions? This was what Colton did his master's thesis with me on. So tell us what you worked on, Colton.
0: Yeah. So so part of getting up to these high uh, temperatures and pressure is is you've got to have a gasket material uh, around that diamond in order to, one, electrically um, insulate everything. Uh, it's got to be able to thermally insulate that diamond. You know, you are reaching up in the 1,400 degrees C region. Um and so you've got to contain that heat in there and protect your anvils because if they get too hot, they're going to fail. Um, and then you've also got to um, have really something that, that flows really well, that deforms, is very, very soft Yeah, because you're getting big
1: macroscopic movement of these presses. And mm-hmm. if it doesn't sort of mechanically stick with it and not break and still can contain all that pressure, mm-hmm.
0: that's a tall order. It is a tall order. And so ironically, you use really, really soft material in order to make diamond. So this uh, probably the widest used material is... Uh, pyrophyllite. Uh, it's very similar to talc. That's another option that, that some people use. Um, it's very compliant. It's, it's a great thermal insulator, electrically um, insulative. It works, works really well for, for that gasket and is really important in, in reaching those pressures.
1: Very cool. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We're going to talk about our sponsor. When we come back, we're going to have a few more questions for Colton about what's the state of the art right now? What's happening with these and what are some of the challenges in the field?
2: This month's episode is sponsored by Matmatch. Matmatch is a company that's passionate about material science and whose goal is to help connect materials engineers with materials providers and suppliers. Matmatch lets you search by application. When I type cutting tools, I see things like high hardness steels and various other carbides. And so if you're looking for a material that's high hardness or high toughness for your drilling application, look no further than Matmatch. Their platform is used by over a million engineers each year. and Best of all, searching for that perfect material is completely free. Head over to matmatch.com and check out how useful
1: it might be for your next engineering project. We also want to recognize that the Materials Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com or elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. <music> Welcome back. We are so excited to have Colton Fox here. Um, it's one thing to read about these things in a book, but it's a different one to actually be on the floor of the you know production floor and see these things being made. I know I went and toured his facility with him once, and I saw the size of these presses. I it's not what you're thinking probably. They are the size of like my shed. They are big, giant presses that you know the scale of it blew my mind. And there's hundreds of them or more. I don't know. There were tons of these things.
0: There's a lot of them.
1: So what's it like to work over there? Uh, tell us about U.S. Synthetic.
0: So U.S. Synthetic, I mean, we've been around for about 40 years, um, and we're a leader in the development and production of polycrystalline diamond cutters, mostly for oil and gas exploration. We're located just right in Orem, Utah. Um, so what do you do there? What's your job? Yeah, so I, I work as a research and development engineer. So really, I my responsibilities. is I cover anything from new product development and applications and new markets. I'm doing machine design, process control, material testing, tons more. Um, pretty much I just get to push the current limits and and establish new state of the art technology.
1: Can I say how much I love that? I love that companies are willing to invest in R and D. So many of them take the easy path of just maximizing profits off their current product because it is expensive to hire people like Colton and other engineers to just try stuff, to try and make it better out there. It'd be a lot safer bet to just go with what you're currently working, but it doesn't pay off in the long run. I'm glad to
0: see some innovation. So what surprised you about your job? You know, something that really surprised me was um, how technical it really is. Uh, when you first look at a polycrystalline diamond compact, all it is is a, a cylinder. And so they all look the same. You see this thin little black piece of, of diamond on top, this diamond table, and then you've got a tungsten carbide bottom. You, you think, well, how, how technical can it be? Um, but as you really delve into the science, um, it is extremely complicated. Um, lots of lots of different things that you can
2: Yeah, I have to imagine things with the microstructure, even the shape of the tool bit as well, depending on the application you're going for.
0: Yeah, they're a big, big deal.
1: Well, think about it. Like when you press things, we know that there are temperature gradients and pressure gradients, so it's not going to be totally uniform. And you're working in a system where you're essentially, you have like this source of cobalt on the bottom, which is your sintering aid. So there's going to be a gradient in cobalt up through your device. Like it gets complicated really quickly there. Um, The microstructure is going to be changing. If you were to zoom in at that level, you'd see the microstructure is not going to be homogeneous. There's a lot going on. There is. So what's the current state of the art of the market? Like, are we still using these things? Uh, what's happening?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the market is is huge. This is the bread and butter of the oil and gas drilling industry. I mean, they're not going anywhere. It's it's strong. Uh, COVID-19, It's I mean, it's hit everybody really hard, but oil and gas especially. Um, but it, it is a really, really strong market. Um, another really cool application for uh, the market that these are in is, um, Sparks had mentioned about, Diamond's low coefficient of friction, and we especially um, play to that. And so we have diamond bearings that no we wait. use.
1: not just coated diamond. It's no. It's solid. So I'd heard of like silicon nitride bearings and things that they don't require oil. You can use them in space. They're mm-hmm. pretty niche, but I've never heard of diamond bearings. That's wild. Do you actually have customers or is this just oh, hypothetical? Yeah. No,
0: it's, it's a huge, huge business for us. Um, that is so cool. Yeah, we do diamond bearings. And what's great about them is they've got that low coefficient of friction they last forever because of their hardness and, and strength. Um, and they also can deal with really, really harsh environments that other materials can't deal with. Like you could put these out in, in tidal power generators out in the ocean. Um, cause oh, that, that corrosion so just cool. doesn't and, affect yeah, the not diamond.
1: Dude, that's awesome. So, you know, we've been hyping this material up like it's a super material. It can do all the things. It must have limitations. So you're in the trenches. What are the limitations of polycrystalline diamond?
0: Yeah, for sure. There, there are limitations. I mean, diamond, it's pretty much got everything, but, in order to make it like we had talked about earlier you you really need that catalyst so your cobalt your nickel your iron some different things mostly in the cobalt um, and it helps form the diamond but it can also aid in its undoing and so it, it's not a great choice for machining steels where you, you maybe use a different material like cubic boron nitride um, because that catalyst helps form the diamond it also helps to turn it back into graphite and so it that is a big limitation um, another really big limitation is the coefficient of thermal expansion so you get this cobalt in there in that interstitial space and it's got such a different coefficient of thermal expansion that as you heat these up when you're drilling and using them that that cobalt will start to expand and put a lot of stress so thermal between stresses forming a lot of thermal stresses you'll start to crack and, and fracture that diamond and so, you so have when to be they careful. use them
1: do you guys recommend that they stay at their operating so that you don't see this like cycling if you're going to use it as like Keep you try and keep it at that temperature without cycling as much as possible, or is that not a thing?
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely a thing. You try not to go above certain temperatures. Another thing is we just try to extract that cobalt out. Um, Oh, after
1: okay, so that's interesting. So, again, we filled up the interstitials mm -hmm. right in the marbles with this liquid that solidifies into a solid, and then you try and get it out afterwards.
0: Yeah, yeah, so you can actually extract that out. That's that's a big very cool, um, you leach it back out part of the technology.
2: Are there any developments to look for potentially other catalysts that wouldn't, would have a similar thermal expansion coefficient to diamond?
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely things that, that people have researched in the past and, and um, would be a big advantage to make something thermally stable. That's tricky because you're
1: thinking, excuse me, a metal that's your sintering aid and those are like 10 times higher thermal expansion than ceramics in general. I don't know about diamond specifically, but that's gonna be a tall order to get something that True. doesn't expand. Anyway, very interesting. Sounds like we need material science. It's very cool. So what are some of the challenges that you face
0: on a daily basis and in, in your research? Um, so one of the things that with that cobalt in there, the thermal stability is, is really a big challenge. Um, so trying to find a way to extract that cobalt out um, and, you know, those pore spaces are so small that when you're extracting this out, typically chemically um, it's, it's almost like a diffusion process. And so, to extract that out quickly in a timely manner and efficiently, I mean, that, that, that proves to be a really, really big challenge. Crazy. You'd think like Mm
1: -hmm. it would be the high temperature, high pressure part of this that would be like the most challenging. And it sounds like that's almost been kind of figured out. And it's this other one far removed from that, that that's the challenge. That's cool.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is, is residual stresses. So when you center at high temperature and high pressure, everything's in sort of an equilibrium. And then then once it's cooled down to room temperature, the tungsten carbide shrunk very differently from the diamond. And so you get this, these weird stress states. And then after you shape it to go attach it into a bit, you have to braise it in and you cycle that up to a high temperature again, but it's no longer under that pressure. And so it, it creates a lot of really strange stresses. Um, a lot of cracking can happen. Um, and so overcoming that's another really, really big challenge. Um, one of the biggest is, is volume. So creating pressure when you have a very, very, very small area. Is easy.
1: I mean, <laughs> yeah. My grad student, he went to the synchrotron, and they go up to sixty gigapascals. But it's like on a a speck. Like it is tiny. the the gasket The gasketed area is so small. But you're talking about big pieces, like not quite hockey puck. But yeah, I mean, man. you're
0: looking at at twenty five millimeter diameter. It's a big component type chunk for your final piece. And so and there's
1: some machining down
0: from that. you're saying Oh yeah, there's machining down from that. But but you're pressing these slugs that are, are that large, and so to be able to be stable. To have the equipment to generate those kinds of pressures um, gets exponentially more difficult the larger you go. But, I believe it.
1: We'll let you go. But what's on the horizon, man? What's coming down the line?
0: Uh, there's lots of lots of cool things in the, in the in the pipeline. I mean, one of the big things historically PDC has been just these cylinders. Um, something that's been emerging is is shapes. So very very different contoured shapes on the top that that change that stress pattern. Um, and really change the way that um, drillers drill. Cool. Um, that's, a, that's a really cool. And is area. a lot
2: of that in response to different rock formations or? Mm-hmm. yeah, Yep, absolutely. Because some, I imagine, in different regions of the world, are they're going to have different minerals and different deposits. Some are going to be harder. Some are
0: softer. Yep, absolutely.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, this was a super fun episode to learn more about. The, the backstory behind some of these people is just super cool. Um, we're going to wrap it up. I figure we do a quick Q&A segment. And the question I have for you is, how did you guys spend your Trump bucks to stimulate the economy? What did you do during COVID?
0: We bought our girls at Power Wheels. (laughs) They're stoked about it. Colton
1: had twins. They're probably two or three years old now. Yeah, they'll be two in August. Super cool. And Power Wheels, just like straight Gs rolling on the road side by side.
0: Oh,
2: yeah. That's awesome. How about you guys? I used my Donnie dollars to buy some strange books and some new hiking shoes. My old ones were hurting my feet, and so now I can get out there and enjoy the Utah outdoors. Well done, and Jared.
1: I just moved into a new apartment, so everything's gone towards furniture. Oh, boring. And Lego sets. No, that's, that's not boring. Well, you okay. got to decorate all of the new um, bookshelves and stuff with items. Very so cool. Just no, we don't read here. <laughs> There's no books, Andrew. And I myself got into beekeeping, so now we have fifty thousand tiny minions out making honey for me as we speak which is amazing
2: so i was browsing through the r slash material subreddit and somebody had a very interesting question i have to imagine that it was inspired out of covid boredom but he asked he well, he explained that he had hypothetically abundant access to large amounts of um peanut butter and human flesh and he was wondering oh, what would this. be <laughs>
0: what would be better for making diamonds we've made it out of peanut butter before but i don't know about human flesh hey there, there's carbon there there's was like carbon, a we'll ton make it. of
1: comments on this people got super into it go back and check that one out for i sure. thought it was
2: yeah i thought it was really creative a, a, the consensus seemed to be that it wouldn't matter because <laughs> when you raise it to a high enough temperature everything would burn yeah, off I guess
1: you end up with you know what's the word for it um
2: pyrolyzed you're gonna end up with pyrolyzed carbon in either case yeah. but that's an industry people will turn their loved ones ashes into diamonds
1: so All I you guess can. you can do it. All right. I want to do it. Okay. If you have questions for us or feedback, please send us emails. We actually do check our email like once a week. <laughs> and uh, we we would love it if you would subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. We now are posting them on YouTube. In fact, you'll find some of our bonus secret episodes there with video. You can see our smiling faces on the YouTube machine. So check us out. If you leave us a review, that will help other people find the show, and we would appreciate that. Um, we're very active on our Instagram page, which is at materialism.podcast. We do giveaways there. We post pictures of our awesome recording studio during coronavirus in there. Anyways, and we're grateful for the mu- people who make music for the show. That's Alphabot and Colobite. You can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp, uh, and we'd appreciate to check them out. So, with that said, we will see you guys next time.
0: The Adventures of Fire electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.